Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. We recognize our obligation as settlers on this land to work to repair the harms perpetrated upon Indigenous communities and acknowledge the ongoing trauma colonialism has inflicted and continues to inflict on First Nations, Métis, and Indigenous peoples. Thank you for listening and for donating. Your support allows us to continue to celebrate and spotlight great writing and important ideas. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin. And I know wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our host today is CBC's Adrian Harewood. Adrian is a longtime friend of the festival and one of the city's most insightful interlocutors. You can catch him weeknights on CBC Ottawa News and teaching with the Faculty of Journalism at Carleton University. He'll be talking with Miriam J.A. Chancy about her acclaimed new novel, What Storm, What Thunder. This remarkable book introduces us to 10 survivors of the earthquake in Haiti on January 12th, 2010. Here's Adrian Harewood to introduce us to Miriam Chancy. Miriam Chauncey was born in Haiti, but grew up in Canada. She first lived in Quebec, but spent the bulk of her years in this country in Western Canada, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. She attended the University of Manitoba, where she received her bachelor's degree in English and philosophy, and then went to Dalhousie University for a master's in English literature. She received her PhD from the University of Iowa in 1994. Miriam Chauncey has taught at numerous universities, including Vanderbilt, Arizona State, Louisiana State, Smith College, the University of California, Santa Barbara, the University of Cincinnati. She is currently the Hartley Burr Alexander Chair of Humanities at Scripps College in Claremont, California. In addition to her scholarly work, Mary Machancy is a prolific novelist. She has written four novels, including Spirit of Haiti, which was shortlisted for the 2004 Commonwealth Writers' Prize, The Scorpion's Claw, and The Loneliness of Angels, which won the Guyana Prize for Caribbean Fiction in 2011. Her most recent novel is called What Storm, What Thunder? Mary Chancy was the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2004, and she joins me this morning from Greater LA uh, in California. Miriam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Adrian. I'm happy to be here. Miriam, I wanted to begin this way because I, I, I'd like to claim you as, as being someone who's part of my tribe, born born in, in 1970 in, in Port-au-Prince in, in Haiti. Your, your family immigrated to Canada in the 1970s. What brought your family to this country? Um, initially, uh, so my parents actually met in France and uh, and had uh, one of my uh, had my sibling in France and uh, wanted to settle back in Haiti. And of course, uh, 1970 was really the middle of a Duvalier dictatorship, uh, and opportunities in Haiti were 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 scarce or complicated to come by. And at the same time, uh, French Canada was uh, advertising for um, francophone instructors. And so my parents were recruited to uh, be teachers in Quebec City. Uh, my father taught French and uh, I think at the high school level, and then my mother uh, taught accounting. And then both of them were then uh, in turn recruited to teach in Winnipeg for in the same subject areas in the French part of Winnipeg, the French what? Quarter. 
what was it like and what did it mean to be a Haitian Canadian growing <laughs> up in Winnipeg in the 1960s? <laughs> well, um, as far as I know, at the time, there were only two Haitian families uh, and our fathers were best friends, which was great. Uh, there was another Miriam in the other family. So I had a, a sort of almost sister who had the same name. Um, and we shared a lot because, because we were uh, very few. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to explain because there, of course, is a sense of isolation, uh, not having a Haitian community as there was in Quebec and uh, Quebec City and also in Montreal. And I know uh, there is in Ottawa. Um, and I know that today there is a larger Haitian community in Winnipeg, but in the 70s, there, it was really non-existent. Um, but at the same time, we went back and forth between um, Winnipeg, first Quebec, Winnipeg, and, and Haiti for many years. And so I don't think I felt that absence uh, until I was older. Mm-hmm. And, and so you imagine, as a young person, you imagined yourself as a Haitian. Yeah, I always did because I, I mean, it, it really, for me, was very striking to be born in Haiti at the time, but I was, and I've reflected on this over time uh, because when I was born and my parents were uh, children of the 30s, and so they actually married uh, late for people of their generation. Um, and what that meant is that, you know, their siblings had already had children and those children were in their 20s when I was born, but most of them were still in Haiti. So I had a huge extended family. I still had a set of grandparents who were in Haiti. Uh, also a great grandmother who was still alive when I was born, uh, who died over 100 when I was about eight years old. Um, so there was a, a, a large family network and um, I was embraced by it. And as a, as a child, um, there was really a sense of, of being included in everything. And, and because I was so young, receiving so much information from different generations of a family. So I was really embedded in Haitian culture from the very beginning. And I really wasn't aware that I was becoming ca- Canadian, if, if, if I can put it that way. Um, partly because, you know, I was raised in French and Creole, and then uh, by the time I was mainstreamed into Anglophone schools, I was, you know, between the ages of eight and 10. Um, and so there were lots of transitions, you know, to live through, but I was anchored in uh, being Haitian and of being Haitian origin. And that's never left me. You say you were anchored being Haitian. You were embedded yeah. in, in Haitian, Haitian culture. What was your conception then of Haiti? growing up? What was your kind of understanding of the place? Sure. Um, well, of course, there's, there are certain things that you don't know as a child. And I think one of the things that uh, both sides of my family did did very well uh, when I was a child and for the children and the family was to leave us, um, you know, blissfully unaware of the politics of a country. And so, you know, certainly people uh, struggled or may have struggled. Different parts of the family may have struggled under the Duvalier regime. Um, but both sides of my family avoided politics for the most part in order to survive. And what that meant is that we were unaware that there was a dictatorship and we were shielded from it. Um, and so my understanding of the country and, and of course, uh, Haiti in the seventies is not like Haiti today, uh, in the sense that there was a great deal more security uh, in all senses of a word. Uh, they were not the kinds of gangs and kidnappings and the things that we hear about on the news today. There was more food security. 
Um, you know, you could walk freely in the streets. And, and I remember doing that as a child. So my memories of Haiti is a place of great beauty, uh, a place of great generosity, which are things that still remain, I have to say, uh, and uh, where people really shared everything, you know, the abundance, because of course, uh, when we were especially coming back to Haiti, uh, my grandmother would put on a great feast, which would last for days. Uh, and so I wasn't aware until I was older, but that this wasn't an everyday occurrence, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it was a place for me of abundance, of richness, of love, um, and of beauty. You, as you mentioned, you alluded to, you were the child of teachers. Your, your mother taught accounting, your father taught, taught French. So clearly, this was a family that valued education. What was the role that literature played in your life growing up in that household? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, my, my so literature and also music, I have to say, because my father comes from a, a fairly well-known musical family, and he's also a musician. Uh, and, when, and when my parents met, he was... Um, he was actually making a living as a musician. Um, and he actually just put out a CD this year um, called Invitation, uh, in, spelt in the Creole, Invitation. Wilbert Chancy, Wilbert Chancy. Amazing. Uh, yeah, and he's in his mid 80s. So I think it's, it's really wonderful. He's a, um, he's a spring chicken compared to Clint <laughs> Eastwood and Alanisa Bomsawin, the, the 89 year old you know, indigenous filmmaker. Your, your, your dad's just getting started. Absolutely. He's working on new songs as we speak, I'm sure. Uh, and his younger brother started a band called Tabu Combo, uh, which became Tabu Combo Superstars that people might know in compa music, which was the first internationally known uh, band out of Haiti. Um, and so there was music, um, there was literature because my father studied uh, French literature, uh, eventually got a PhD on, on um, uh, André Dautel who's a, a YA author. Um, and then my mother, though, interestingly, was the prolific reader. I mean, she read everything. Um, and she gave me my, my first book in English, which was uh, John Steinbeck's uh, My Red Pony. Um, and she also read along with me a lot of things. So even when I became an academic and started writing on Haitian women's literature, some of which was not known to her, she read those books along with me and, and we discussed them. Um, so she was she was always reading. And um, so I, I think and I was reading from very, very young. And in fact, my mother taught me how to uh, read Creole, which which is not commonplace. So both in the old orthography and, and of course, I know the new orthography, uh, because when she would braid my hair as a child, she had me read the poems of Maurice Oluroi, who was the first Haitian poet to write in Haitian Creole. And uh, that's how I learned uh, Creole. Uh, you know, and so, so it was always, literature was always very, very important. I read early and I kept reading and, uh, you know, and I would speculate as a child that as to the importance of being an author and then eventually became one. If I can ask, what was your mom's name? Adeline. Mm. Adeline. She, she just passed away in 2019. Oh, my condolences. Thank you. What, what, what did she teach you about literature? What did she teach you about books? You know, it's hard to say because um, my mother was not a, a, a literature teacher. Uh, accounting was her was her thing. You know, numbers were her thing. Um, but she really understood um, the beauty of a good story. You know, um, she she could and she loved film. So I have that's something else I would say: music, film, and literature. 
because I know my mother would tell me stories of, of uh, escaping to the movies in Port-au-Prince when there used to be movie houses. And, um, and so we would also watch a lot of movies growing up uh, together. And, and when they would visit me in the United States, we would go to the movies a lot. Um, so the, the a narrative arc, you know, she was, she was a very good critique of a narrative arc that failed. <laughs> you know, she could tell you when a story was not working. Um, sometimes, you know, we would talk about, you know, uh, authorial decisions, you know, when an author was too intrusive, you know, why, why did they make this choice as opposed to that choice? Um, you know, so she, she was, she was somebody who could have actually, I think, been a, a book critic, honestly, because she was very good at discerning when a book had not quite met its potential. Um, she loved murder mis mysteries, well-written murder mysteries. I think the last book she read was a Louise Penny novel. And, um, and she, she enjoyed uh, Mar Margaret Atwood's work and, um, and, she, and, and then came to read uh, people like mystery and, and so forth. So she sought out really fine writing and she, um, was, she really loved you know, a, a story well-told. You were clearly a precocious child. You, you, you were a child that, that loved literature. I know that that went through the the, the library as a kind of a, a bookworm. And and I and I was listening to another interview that you you conducted. You talked about the, the importance of Alice Walker and, yes. and, and her literature. As I think a fourteen year old, you yes. read her books that really had an impact on you. Talk about your relationship with Alice Walker and her work. Yes, that was that was really uh, a turning point for me in my growth. I think as a reader. And, and probably as a writer, or, or to understand that I could be a writer and that I could produce something that would be, that might be of importance. Because I was reading, you know, as a child, I was, I was inducted in all the great literature of uh, French children's literature. And then, of course, uh, coming into Canada, reading, you know, the big books of Canadian literature, you know, for children like Montgomery and so forth. Um, but I, I had read through what I was uh, able to read through in the public library for children. And I was given access, I think with my mother's permission to the adult part of the library. And I found uh, In Search of My Mother's Gardens by Alice Walker, which had at the time just been published. And um, I remember reading that book, you know, walking, you know, getting off the bus and walking home, uh, reading it you know, because I just couldn't believe what I was reading. And that book is a book of essays where Walker recounts not only her own journey to writing, but how that journey is related to other writers, you know, so both in the British uh, and American tradition and in the African-American literary tradition, you know, so she mentions people like Woolf, you know, Virginia Woolf, but there are a series of essays about the importance of early African-American writers uh, like Langston Hughes, County Cullen, uh, Zora Neale Hurston. And I read that book and I jotted down all the names of the authors, Black authors that I had never heard before. And I went and found them. And uh, lo and behold, at the time, there was a um, first edition of a County Cullen book called Color, which I found at the University of Manitoba, which I hope is still there, uh, in the open stacks because it's a very, very rare book. I have not found it in the United States, uh, even as a professor. And, uh, and I read, and I just thought this opens up a door, you know, a door to not only a world that I'm not, I don't really know very much about, you know, which is a black literary world, 
being in a, a, you know, the context of growing up in Winnipeg, but also the way Alice Walker wrote about what it meant for her to become a writer. Then I had a sort of roadmap to thinking about writing in a new way, not just, oh, it would be great to write a book, but that there's a responsibility in writing. And part of that is leaving something behind. And so when I started publishing, and I started publishing a few years later uh, in Canada, um, I remember setting for myself a kind of standard, which was that I wanted to write back to that 14-year-old who, you know, didn't find a lot of voices reflecting her own experience and, you know, had that opening up through Walker's work. Uh, and it, it would take several more years for me to realize that I also wanted to read Caribbean writers and that I hadn't been reading them and that I wanted to know more about them. You found Alice Walker as, as a 14-year-old. You later mm -hmm. find James Baldwin and, and you, yes. you write a thesis about yes. James Baldwin. What was it about Baldwin's work that so captivated you? You know, I, you know, and I don't recall if uh, Walker had written about Baldwin. I don't recall how I came across Baldwin, um, but I know that I read all of his works as a teenager and uh, decided, I think, around age 17 or so to, um, to, to you know, go on to write the masters um, on him. And what I observed and what I still love about James Baldwin is that he wrote in pretty much every genre imaginable. You know, he has very little poetry, but he wrote plays, he wrote novels, he wrote short stories, he wrote essays. Um, and, I, and he also tried his hand at some, at some screenplays. Um, and so I remember thinking this is somebody who is trying to get a point across, not just one point, obviously, but the, there's a message that he's carrying. And he's trying to do this in a variety of forms. And one of the things I learned when I was working on that thesis is that most, even though he was a best-selling author in his own time uh, of novels, um, that most critics rejected his novels as being incomplete or uh, not artful enough, you know, this kind of thing. And one of my realizations as a young person, because I, I was working on that thesis, I think I was 19, 19 or 20, I remember thinking, they just don't understand what he's doing. Or what he is trying to do is before it's time. And if you're trying to do something before anybody else understands what you're doing or speaking on these particular issue, because he's looking at race, he's looking at gender, he's looking at class, he's looking at sexuality, he's looking at, at transnationalism before we called it transnationalism, um, then you have to do things to the novel form that maybe people aren't expecting. Um, and of course he was working out of France, a culture not his own, and I think he was affected by uh, French literature. So I think he was transforming the novel in the way that wasn't understood yet. But for me, it was still successful, not because it was commercially, commercially successful, but because he was succeeding in getting his message across, you know, about uh, the worth of every human being, about the struggles of individuals who are left on the margins, uh, the struggles of artists, you know, who are trying to express themselves and are, are misunderstood. And so for me, he's always been a kind of beacon, the kind of writer I want to be. But if I do my best in trying to get whatever it is the message is that I'm trying to get across, then I still can go on and write the next book because the importance is to just keep trying to get the message out. The, 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 the reason for writing is not the commercial success or um, simply to write something artful. Mm -hmm. 
so far we, we've talked about two African-American writers, two of the leading African-American writers really of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Who were some Caribbean writers or African writers who also helped to shape you? Yeah, so, you know, I was just thinking about those teenage years and the, the first uh, Haitian writer I believe I read was Anthony Phelps, uh, who I believe still lives in, in, um, in Canada, in, I think in Montreal, um, who writes in French. It was a book called Moine Fini. And, um, and then of course, later on, I read Dany La Furrière uh, uh, in the French. I, I think my, my favorite um, book of his is, uh, uh, I think it's been translated as uh, An Odor of Coffee about his grandmother. Um, I also like his book, uh, I Am a Japanese Author, which I, I sometimes teach uh, to sort of change the, the narrative as he was attempting to do about what Caribbean writers can write. And then, um, you know, I wrote my dissertation on Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean women writers, uh, people like Dio Brand, Marlene Orbez Phillip, who are both Canadian as well from Trinidad and Tobago, um, and Michelle Cliff, who was a Jamaican-American, um, Joan Riley, uh, Beryl Gilroy, uh, Beryl Gilroy, who's actually Paul Gilroy's mother. Very few people know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, she was a YA novelist. And I discovered that later. And I thought, ah, this is where he's getting all of his uh, good ideas. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and so, uh, and of course, there are so many contemporary uh, Caribbean writers to read today. Um, just, just so many. So yeah, that's, that, I would say that's where I started. Uh, in, in my explorations. And then for Haitian uh, women writers, of course, most people have read Edwige Danzika, uh, who's, uh, who's American. Uh, but from the French side, uh, writing out of Haiti, there's um, Yannick Laes, uh, who, has, uh, who won the Prix Femina in France a few years ago. Um, she has a book that's translated called Moonbath. And then Emilie Prophet, who is uh, published out of Mémoire d'Ancrier, but I believe she lives in Port-au-Prince. Uh, Mémoire d'Ancrier is uh, published out of Montreal. Uh, she has a book coming out in English called Blue um, in, in January, I believe. You received your PhD at the astonishing age, I think of 24, which, which is really- 24. Which is, which is really remarkable. Like I, I think like, like anyone who's, who's done academic work to get that degree at that age is, is really, uh, it's kind of unheard of. And, and you kind of embark on this career where you're balancing the academic, you know, with, with your literary criticism, but also your love for, for, for writing literature, for, for writing right. novels. I'm wondering how you kind of imagined your writing life. Did you imagine always kind of balancing those two things, living in those two worlds? Um, you know, not really. Or, okay, I should say, I should say, I was going to say no, but I should say yes. <laughs> In the sense that uh, it was actually an African-American writer whom I, I had met when I was uh, trying to decide where to, to take the PhD, uh, John Edgar Weidman, who, uh, who actually was, trying, was supposed to be recruiting me to the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, but listened to what I thought about writing and said, well, you need to go to the University of Iowa, which was also trying to recruit me, and I believe he'd gone an MFA from. And... Um, and he said, the reason you'll, you, you should go there is because you need the PhD, uh, but you'll be able to be in contact with writers and keep writing. Um, and in effect, that is what happened. I went to Iowa, um, although I, I shifted, I was supposed to be writing on African-American women's literature and then shifted after the comps uh, to, the, to Caribbean women writers. 
and um, and had really no training, you know, in that, uh, and just thought, well, somebody's got to do it. I'm going to do it. Um, and I was still writing creatively at the same time. And I think for a time, you know, so the way I work, and so I don't think this was planned, is that I always work on a creative work at the same time as I work on a uh, academic work. It was started after the dissertation. So when I was, um, or maybe between the dissertation of the next book, which was Framing uh, Silence on Haitian Women Writers. So I was working on a novel, uh, which became Scorpion, Scor The Scorpion's Claw, which came out in the 2000s when I wrote uh, Framing Silence. And that kept going. But what happened in terms of my publishing order is that there was always a pressing need for the academic work at the times that I was working on them um, in the sense that very little work was being done on, on Anglophone Afro-Caribbean women writers when I wrote on them. So that was published very quickly. Uh, when I wrote on um, Haitian women writers, Haiti had just been um, intervened uh, you know, there was a military intervention in Haiti in 1994, which caused me to write Framing Silence. So there was an immediate interest in that. But there was less interest in the novels. Uh, I think Edwige Dantica had not yet published. She published in 95. Um, and uh, also Anne Christine Dadeski was the other Haitian American writer who published in that same year. Uh, so there were only two novels written in, in English by Haitian, uh, Haitians, like anywhere. Uh, and so the, the interest was much lower. And so, and this is why my first novels were published in the UK, where there had been a, a much longer tradition of publishing Caribbean writers in English. Um, and so I just kept working, you know, when, when my first novel, which was The Scorpion's Claw, was not picked up, I just wrote the next one, which was Spirit of Haiti. And I remember at the time thinking, well, this is how you realize that you're an author, not an author, but a writer right, when you just keep writing, because you have something to say, which is the Baldwinian example that we were talking about before. How do those two things inform each other? How does your novel writing inform your literary criticism and vice versa? Um, you know, what I always think of is that there is, so academic writing is, although I try to infuse it with artfulness, and I, you know, I want it to be well written, it is formulaic, there is a formula that is recognized in, in um, academic uh, circles. And you have to you know, produce what I would think of as a set of proofs. You know, this is what you're, you're trying to demonstrate. A thesis, you're trying to back it up with um, your evidence from different texts and you try to make a cogent argument. And what happens in the process is that there is a kind of way in which there is an excess, there's something more there's a reason why you're doing that academic work or that literary criticism, uh, whether it's to bring out certain voices that haven't been heard before or to talk about themes in uh, certain kinds of literatures that should uh, have more attention. But there's something that, that, at least from a writing point of view, gets left behind or left out of a conversation, what I call an excess. And it's that excess that for me informs the creative works that I've produced. Um, you know, so for example, um, I could say, you know, in the Scorpion's Claw was, for example, my expression of what it was like to be in my early 20s and unable to return to Haiti um, after the fall of the Duvalier regime and thinking about a whole generation of young people who had been born during the regime and didn't know quite what it would mean for Haiti to move forward or what their role might be in that Haiti, whether they were in Haiti or outside of it, if 
their memory of Haiti was always clouded with the sense of, you know, the dictatorship. And so it's one thing to look at what people have said about the dictatorship or to research the dictatorship and then to tap into the emotional significance of that legacy and even the spiritual dimensions of struggling or resisting against it. And that's what the novels do. They work on both spiritual and emotive dimensions. I'm in conversation with Miriam J.A. Chancy. Uh, she is an academic and also an author. Her latest novel is called What Storm, What Thunder. And I, and I wanted to kind of shift now and, and talk about the book, talk about What Storm, What mm-hmm. Thunder, which of course tells the story of, of, of the devastating Haiti earthquake of January uh, 2010, which claimed the lives of, of upwards of 300,000 people. And I, and I was curious as to, first of all, why you wanted or why you needed to write this book about the earthquake. Well, in fact, initially, I was not going to write this novel. Uh, initially, my thought was, I'll do everything I can not to write this novel. Why? You know, why, why? Um, you know I had my previous novel, Loneliness of Angels, came out in February 2010. It was actually delayed, uh, I think, uh, for nine months from the previous year and appeared right after the earthquake. And it did talk about a devastating hurricane season that occurred uh, in 2004 and had destroyed part of Gonaive, which is kind of the center for Vodou in Haiti. And um, there were, you know, that novel did, did well in its time. And uh, there were, because it, after the earthquake, I was called upon as many uh, Haitian writers and scholars were to talk about the post-earthquake situation, you know, that whether it was to, you know, give talks on the, on the matter or to take part in fundraisers, you know, we were all called upon to do some of that work. And some of the responses when I would do readings, you know, from loneliness was, well, when certainly you'll be writing a novel, you know, on the earthquake. And my initial reaction was, was no, partly because I was still processing, you know, the meaning of the earthquake for myself, for others, but also because I didn't want to, you know, feel like I was sort of jumping on uh, a kind of um, bandwagon, you know, on works on the earthquake, which appeared uh, prolifically for years uh, after, immediately after the earthquake, many of which were ill-informed and, you know, did not actually help uh, Haitians themselves. And so I didn't want to also contribute to, you know, that literature of errors, if I could put it that way. Because I think it takes time to process certain kinds of um, historical moments. And this was for Haiti certainly um, a big one. And, and, I, and I saw myself that it took uh, several years for Haitian writers in Pohopoints uh, to begin to write on the, on the earthquake. Um, so what, what happened for me was that I, I was giving those talks. Uh, I was book solid for about six months, uh, giving talks on, on the post-earthquake situation and its effects on women and children in particular. Um, and then that continued on at, at not quite the same rhythm, but probably, uh, you know, for the next, uh, for three years, you know, until 2013. And every time I gave talks, people who had been through the earthquake or knew people who had been through the earthquake would come and, and commiserate with me. And I didn't, you know, I appreciated those commiserations, but I didn't really think a lot about them as they were happening. I just thought I was doing my work, you know, uh, shedding some light on the circumstances and that I was doing it well because I was getting, you know, these responses uh, that were affirmative 
but that were also very emotional. And we, and we were just talking earlier about this excess. Where does the excess go? Because most of my, my talks were academic, you know, even when people, uh, lay people would come to them. And I, and I remember there was one talk I gave, uh, which was actually on Zora Neale Hurston, uh, but it ended with uh, some language that she used in the 30s, where she talked about uh, what would happen to Pohol Pines if it was shaken by an earthquake and what would happen to all its beauty. And it was a very chilling uh, citation to come across. And I started talking about uh, the earthquake at the end of that talk. And, um, and this was in Brooklyn. And there were some Haitian uh, merchants who had been through the earthquake who were selling you know, their wares at this uh, conference. And they came up to me after the talk and they said, we, don't, we, we didn't speak English. So they, they said in, in French and Creole, um, we didn't have any idea what you were talking about. But at, at the end of that talk, I started crying when I was um, speaking about uh, Hurston's earthquake um, metaphor. And, uh, and they said, but when you started crying, we understood what you were, what you were trying to say, you know? And so I remembered those moments. And in 2013, um, I met uh, a painter in Trinidad, a very well-known painter, Le uh, Leroy Clark, who was working on a series of paintings on um, on Haiti in Trinidad. And um, he asked me what they meant. And again, there were tears and there was a lot of reading of those paintings. He had never been to Haiti. He had never met a Haitian painter. He had not studied uh, Haitian painting, which is very particular. And, and those paintings said so much to me. And he had started this, um, this long series after the earthquake. And I remember as I was talking to him about what I saw, what I felt, and when I, you know, I had, to, I had to figure out what this was about. And when I went home uh, from Trinidad after that trip, I sat down and the outline of this novel, what's become West Storm, What Thunder came about. Because what I had realized, what I realized in that exchange is that in the same way that, he, that this painter had felt visited by spirits from Haiti who were speaking to him, but in some ways, those individuals who had been coming to me after every talk for three years had been messengers, you know, who assumed that as a writer, I would be doing something on their behalf and on behalf of others. And then I realized that it was like I, we've talked about before, or as Walker, I think, had instructed me as a teenager, that there was a responsibility as a, that I carried, that some of us feel we carry as writers, to leave something behind, to do something with the gift that we have. And, um, and that's how I started the novel. And Leroy Clark, of course, was a towering figure in the Trinidadian art world. He, he uh, sadly passed away uh, this, this right. in just in July. Um, you know, th th your book, it, it, it's really built around the, the matriarchal figure of, of mm -hmm. Malu, uh, a market woman. Yes. Where does the, the, the character come from? Because I know that I believe your great grandmother also yes. was a market woman. That's so right. What, what, so where, where did Malu come from? Well, she comes a little bit from my great grandmother, who I did not know. Uh, in my, this is my maternal great grandmother, whom I did not know. She passed away before I was born, um, but who was a towering figure in my mother's life and in her siblings' life. So I always heard about her. I always heard about her exploits as a market woman, the success that she had uh, to the point that she was employing other women and uh, was able to 
contribute to her family such that her uh, grandchildren, which was my, my mother's generation, could go you know, to the, the better schools in Poho Pines. And so I had an example uh, you know, from that legacy of how market women are so important. But of course, any time you spend in Poho Pines or in the Caribbean, uh, you, know, you go to the market and you see market women who are working from before daybreak until nightfall and at nightfall, you know, lighting oil lamps and working into the dark uh, and are always providing for the community, right? In terms of, of foodstuffs and, and other, other staples. And it has always struck me, both knowing, you know, my legacy and, and watching those women, how those women have uh, become emblematic when you look at news reports of Haiti. And yet, very, very few people speak to market women, you know, directly speak to them. Um, we, don't, we don't get a sense of their interior lives. We don't get a sense of their interior lives, that they have interior lives, or that even that they're knowledgeable about the society that they live in, right? That market women are regarded as being kind of on the last rung of the society. And uh, so I knew from my great-grandmother's uh, life that that was not true, that many market women are in fact are very successful business people. Um, and they're very humble, but they're very um, tenacious and very knowledgeable. I mean, I have had conversations with market women in Haiti who can explain to you global economic policy because they know that it affects them in their market on the ground. And so to me, you know, after the earthquake, when I was being asked to give talks about, you know, what was going to happen next and how should Haiti reconstruct, I remember writing a piece called, um, you know, letting our, something like our grandmother, letting our grandmother speak, you know, with the idea that, you know, why aren't we talking to the grandmothers in this society? Why aren't we talking to the market women who know the society inside and out? And so for the novel, I wanted the market woman to have a central place. And this is why she opens the novel and she closes the novel because she's the one who knows everyone in the society. She knows, so in the novel, she knows all the characters, you know, some more intimately than others, some she's related to, others she's not because everybody goes through the marketplace. Everybody is interacting with the market women, talking in front of them, if not to them, so that the market women hear everything, they listen to everyone and they are privy to so much information. And so I was also trying to, in an indirect way, uh, suggest that perhaps we should, you know, give people like the market women more of a say in the future direction of the society. One of the characters that Malu knows very well because she raised him is Richard. Uh, mm -hmm. But of course, Richard has turned his back in many ways on the market women. He's turned his yes. back on, on his mother. Uh, Richard right. is this character who is... Uh, an entrepreneur. He 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 left BT to to, to, yeah. to get his to get his fortune to win his fortune. He right. ends up uh, being involved in water bottling and and ends up making profits profiting from the sale of water to thirsty people in mm -hmm. in Haiti. Tell us a bit about about this 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 character uh, Richard, who is a, a very very complex individual. Mm -hmm. where, where did he come from, and what are you trying to say with with his example? Yeah. Well, you know. The irony with Richard is that he's learned, he's like his mother. He's a good entrepreneur, right? He's a, he's a, he's a marketer. 
Um, so he's actually learned from one of the best salespeople in the world how but he to be a salesman. He doesn't of acknowledge course it. Not. No, yes. no, he doesn't acknowledge it because yeah. the other part of, of Richard is that he's also forgotten who he is. He's, he's forgotten where he's come from. Um, so he's Haitian, but he's become French. He has, um, you know, acquired great, great wealth. He's, he has financed uh, a natural daughter's education in Haiti that he's left behind. But he's ashamed of where he comes from. And he's ashamed of, of Malou. So he's ruptured uh, bonds with her. Um, and of course, her bonds with him have never ended, except, you know, uh, when we find out, you know, what's happened to him uh, through the earthquake. But Richard, for me, was a way to explore, you know, the kind of uh, capitalism and the, the kind of future we sometimes are told places like Haiti should work towards. And I suppose, you know, Richard is, is a very good capitalist. He's been very successful, but he's lost so much in the process. Right. He's he's lost a sense of his culture. He's lost his sense of responsibility towards uh, Haiti and Haitians. Um, and he sees no conflict in it at all. He's lost his soul. But but he doesn't perceive it that way because he has gained everything that the world has told him there was to gain. You know, a lot of money, a beautiful wife, a summer house, you know, on the sea, you know, beautiful children. Um, so in his mind. He's gained everything. And a further irony in his story is that because he so neglected his soul, he loses that beautiful wife, those beautiful children, the house by the sea, which is actually what compels him back to Haiti, even though, you know, uh, in the story is his daughter who's calling him back. But he doesn't perceive the, the soul, uh, you know, that aspect of the spirit being called back, uh, even though he does have an encounter with the sea, right, the, the, the most alive body of water probably known to man. Uh, but he, but it's only in his last moments that he understands what he has lost and what there is to, to regain, you know. Uh, but yeah, the message there was, you know, do we do, is capitalism really the wave of the future for a place like Haiti? You know, I should have mentioned that the, that the story is told, of course, Malou is the, the central character, but the story is told through 10 different characters, one of whom I think one of the most endearing characters in your book, a lovable character, a character mm. that you want the best for is, is 15-year-old Tefia. Mm. Uh, and you, you want her, you know, and, and as, as the, the father of a daughter, I'm looking at this girl child and I want the best for her. Mm. You know, you, there's, there's so much that you want. There's so much hope that you have for this character. And yet, her life is shattered mm -hmm. in, in, in the aftermath of, of the earthquake. Tell right. us a bit more about, about Tapia and, and who she represents to you. Yeah, that's nice to hear uh, your take on Tapia. That's nice to hear that you want the best for her. And I, and I hope uh, that's what readers continue to feel about this character. I mean, Tapia is, is full of life. Um, you know, she's 15. She's like a 15 year old anywhere. She's, you know, thinking about who she might date, who her best friend is going to be, where she's going to go on a Friday night or any weeknight if she can get away from the house. Um, and she really doesn't think much about the future beyond these immediate concerns. You know, she's a typical teenager. And, um, and she's part of a, of a, of a, fa a complicated family. 
um, you know, which is somewhat fractured. She has a brother who's in Boston. She has a younger brother, but nobody, uh, not, she has two brothers who are both older than her, but the younger of which is a little bit uh, confused and, and no one really knows what he's thinking. Um, and she, she is really just searching for her life. And so um, one of the things about Tafia is that the, er, she, she suffers a double trauma. She first goes through the earthquake in which she, lose, she loses family members, loses her family home, ends up in an IDP camp, and then suffers uh, violence in the camps. Uh, and then, you know, becomes a young mother and uh, must endure. And this is a situation that many uh, young girls, uh, teenage girls and young women did go through in the IDP camps. And I wanted to capture that sense of the before everything turned, you know, the before where there was still going to school, when there was still, uh, you know, a sense of, of, a, of a hope and then a fracturing, but a fracturing that in her case doesn't break her. But, but simply changes her life in such a complicated, complete way that we still, hopefully, as readers, want the best for her, want her to thrive. And we have to remember uh, that when we leave her in this story, she's only a year older. You know, she's only 16. And so we have to, we have to imagine that there is still the possibility of a great future for her, even though she has to work through uh, intense pain and intense trauma. In this novel of yours, you are exploring different kinds of trauma. You, you are exploring the trauma of the individual who is present for the cataclysmic event. You're also exploring the trauma of the, the individual who is away, who might not be on the island, but who is also experiencing it, um, I guess, mediated through through media, through television or whatever the case sure. may be. You know, we're mm -hmm. talking about about the Haitian diaspora. And, right. and I think that that's embodied by the character, uh, Tafia's brother, Didier. Mm -hmm. uh, who's a musician, who's, who's, who's gone to up north, gone to mm -hmm. the United States, gone to Boston to make his fortune. And on that day in January 20, 2010, he sees what occurs in Haiti. And he feels this immense sense of guilt. Mm -hmm. immense sense. Of, it's almost that, I, I guess they, they call it the, the survivor's guilt. Can right. you kind of expand on that? Yeah, I mean, there there are two characters who are outside of Haiti. There's there's also Anne Richard's daughter and Malou's uh, granddaughter, who is an NGO worker in Rwanda, uh, who does come back and and uh, you know try to help in the camps and and do some work, but then has to leave. And then there's Didier, who we don't see coming back. We're we're told that he will, but he we don't see him coming back. And, um, you know, Didier is someone who actually is living with guilt already, and it is compounded by the earthquake, the, the, the monumental event of, of the earthquake, because he's someone who's been hiding the fact that he's been struggling as an immigrant, uh, that he's had to confront racism that he didn't understand or realize would, would come, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, living as he does in Boston. And... Um, he is also, you know, so he's been misrepresenting his, his success or lack of success so that his family doesn't really know what's happening to him. He's a musician who, who thought that, you know, he would come to, to uh, uh, the United States and have a great career. And instead, he's uh, driving, uh, you know, jeepney cab, cabs. You know, whenever he has a friend who has uh, time off and will let him drive their cab, he gets to drive a cab to make to make some money. 
And that's how he's getting by. And he's supposed to be sending money back. But uh, at the time that we meet him in the story, he's been sending back less and less money. So his sense of guilt is growing, you know, by the month. And then the earthquake occurs and he can't reach anyone, uh, which was the case for many of us who are outside of Haiti uh, who didn't know what was happening. And and it took weeks to find out uh, who was alive, who, who was dead. And, and this is Didier's situation. And he's also even more helpless than, uh, than or maybe, you know, he finds in, himself in a situation where because of his skill set, there's only a certain a number of things that he can do to help people in Haiti. You know, he's not um, at a place in his art where he can produce something that will be heard by others. He's not an NGO worker like Anne. He can't return and help in that kind of way. And so he really is forced to, you know, sit with his feelings of helplessness and and emptiness and inability to do anything while not knowing what his sister, who he dotes upon, uh, Tafia, is going through. Uh, And so what what I think one can imagine for their future, because Didier uh, is at least a decade older than his sister, is that there's going to be a kind of leveling in terms of uh, who is leading whom in the future. And I think one could, could um, imagine that he's going to be led by, by Tafia rather than the other way around. You know, if we are to be true to history, uh, we, we, we would recognize that, his, that Haiti is a country that has suffered more assaults <laughs> for over, over the course of centuries than, than perhaps any other country in, in this world. It, it's, it's been a serial victim in many ways, a victim mm-hmm. of foreign actors constantly intervening. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been a victim of a, of a kind of extraction, this constant mm-hmm. extraction as well. We often, you know, Haiti is often framed as being, you know, a, a place of need, a place yeah. that the world is going to help. When in fact, you know, one could make the argument that, that Haiti has really provided, allowed many of the countries of the world to, to gain wealth and, and have allowed them to extract. Uh, what, I want you to kind of talk about the way in which Haiti is, is imagined. Uh, mm-hmm. In the kind of popular imagination, particularly in a place like North America, how has Haiti been misrepresented? What is the story about Haiti or the stories that we are missing? Well, I'm hoping you know that my work and and that of of other Haitian writers really changes the narrative around Haiti, uh, because that narrative really has been uh, distorted in this in you know as you're saying as a place that. Um, needs to be intervened with a place that hasn't produced much since the revolution. So there's a kind of split narrative where when the Haitian revolution is recognized, and I I don't think this started happening until the late 1990s uh, with the work of some scholars like uh, Michel Rolf Trouillot with Silencing the Past, uh, which was the subject of a a recent Raoul Peck um, uh, documentary on HBO. Um, Until that work and the work of some other scholars I think there was still this sense of Haiti's revolution as being failed, right? So there, there, I still, you know, teach courses where my young students uh, don't realize that the Haitian revolution was successful. You know, that Haiti was the first, uh, you know, black republic in this hemisphere. And actually, the, you know, I, I also contend that it was the first republic because the United States as constituted today did not happen until uh, the Haitian revolution was successful because of a Louisiana Purchase 
where uh, France had to sell off its properties in the United States in order to uh, get out of this war debt. So, but you know, so the narrative of Haiti, I don't, I don't want to give you a long historical uh, lecture about all the different ways in which it's been distorted, but I think very few people understand that uh, then when France imposed an indemnity on Haiti so that Haiti could regain access to global trade, that that was the beginning of the economic crippling of a country. Uh, you know, I think the, the numbers now is, is I, I think it was- In the billions. It's in the billions. I think in 2004, which was when uh, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was removed from office, uh, it was estimated to be 22 billion. And I think if, if you look at the numbers now, it's much more, it's much larger than that. Uh, so if one could imagine that that money had never been extracted for, for away from Haiti, the kind of wealth that could have been built, you know, uh, from there, the kind of infrastructures that, I, that could have been built forward, uh, because that money was being given to, to France when the country was still thriving in many ways. Uh, there was still a lot of production going on. And then, of course, before the revolution, when there were plantations in Haiti, I think it was something like a seventh of the, of the uh, French population was making its money directly or indirectly from the sugar trade coming out of France, which was the reason, you know, Bonaparte didn't want to let go of his property because it was so lucrative uh, in terms of what it produced uh, financially. So, you know, then you have a revolution, then you have uh, the cultural production, you have the misunderstandings around Vodou, you have a misrepresentation of Haiti's, uh, Haitian's spiritual beliefs, you have a distortion through Hollywood. Uh, Kate Ramsey, actually a, a scholar in Florida, wrote a great book about, you know, the zombification of Haiti through uh, American film. And, and now, you know, zombies are all the rage and, you know, the first zombies are actually uh, prototyped in Haiti, but no one realizes that they come out of resistance movements, you know, uh, the kinds of ways in which uh, enslaved people uh, fought, right, uh, in resisting their enslavers became this, this uh, trope of a monster, you know, um, that then became very popular in American films, and then uh, was, became a blanket, you know, for, for Haiti and, and Vodou, and so I think there's, there's so many ways in which um, Haitian thought, Haitian uh, resistance, and Haitian culture has been uh, sort of simplified, not only oversimplified, but then demonized in a way that is completely false and, and untrue to, to, the, to the world of Haitians. And so I think one of the things that I try to work on or work towards in my work, and I know other Haitian writers do too, is not only to humanize uh, Haitians, you know, to humanize through our stories or, you know, the fiction, but to give a sense through those worlds of how rich Haiti is. So people may be poor materially, but, you know, it would be wonderful if people could try to imagine how a population where over half of a population makes no currency are able to persist, are able to, uh, you know, work work every day, put food on the table for their children, uh, find, you know, the money to, uh, or barter, you know, to make sure that their children have books and, and are able to go to school. You know, the, the level of interest in education in Haiti is, is so high. You know, the hunger for giving to the next generation 
is there. And so, um, you know, we used to have a whole class of artisans in Haiti, you know, the, you know, what people would make in lever goods and uh, in crafts and so forth was a very um, well-known attribute uh, in the Caribbean. And all that fell away uh, when, uh, you know, certain kinds of goods, secondhand goods were dumped into the country. We call them Kennedys because I think they started under, under the Kennedys. And so, you know, the, the future for Haiti, and this was a, a UN-sponsored plan just before the earthquake, had, was limiting Haitians only to doing work in factories um, and, and, you know, really sort of low-level um, possibilities. And I wonder why we can't imagine a Haiti where, because there is such cultural richness, where there is such thirst for knowledge, and there is actually indigenous knowledge, not only of the land, but how the land has been affected by these military interventions and so forth, that um, we could rebuild Haiti alongside Haitians so that trade schools would flourish, so that people could go to schools that would lead uh, to more university attendance, uh, more professional attendance, uh, because there is a great deal that is being produced in Haiti. There are a lot of people in professional classes but uh, like myself, a lot of people have to leave in order to be able to uh, do, do their best work. And so, uh, and those who stay often have class privilege that allows them to stay. What has it meant for you to be publishing this novel of yours, which in many ways is, is a historical novel in the sense that, you know, this happened in, in, in 2010. But but it's 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 all too contemporary, isn't it? Like the, the earthquake happened in 2010, but then another earthquake, another cataclysmic event happens this year. Yeah. What, what's it been like for you to kind of have to kind of endure that? It's been it's been very strange. Um, I, you know, when I heard about the earthquake um, the morning of August 14th of this year, I really didn't believe it. I thought that for some reason there was a news report, you know, about 2010. I thought, okay, there's something going on related to 2010, and okay, let me find out what's going on. Um, I had uh, friends who were affected by the earthquake, and uh, many conversations have been taking place for the last weeks, uh, you know, about how uh, for individuals who went through the second earthquake but may have also gone through the first earthquake, or those of us who you know worked through the first earthquake um, have had to revisit you know, those emotions. And of course, writing this novel, I have been working through all of this for years. And I didn't expect for there to be so much to rethink, uh, to revive, and to also uh, make sure that people who have been directly affected by the second earthquake get the support that they need. I mean, what's clear is that the infrastructures that were needed to be rebuilt since 2010 despite $13 billion going into the country, but not remaining in the country, have not been rebuilt. So that when the August 14 earthquake hit, although in a different region of a country, people were left really um, on their own. And the images coming out of Haiti in August were eerily similar. And I remember, you know, a young man, because the first images came from Haitians themselves, right, from their social media, a young man walking through his town saying, oh my God, it looks like, uh, like dues, you know, it looks like January 12th. And it did. And, uh, you know, similar issues came up, you know, 
people on the outside asking where to donate or not wanting to donate because of what happened to the money after 2010. Uh, and people on the ground not knowing where their resources would come from, whether it was food staples or uh, you know, shelter because over a million people uh, were affected with, with uh, you know, shelter insecurity. And so, you know, and the last earthquake, you know, uh, was also actually quite large. And, and many people don't realize that because the death toll was not as high as 2010. The death toll was still above 2000, which in terms of contemporary earthquakes is quite, quite large. Uh, you know, most earthquakes we hear about, we hear about people in the hundreds passing. And so we're, we're past the 2000 mark. Um, right now, there are a lot of people seeking um, mental health counseling because of uh, what it has brought back from 2010 that was unprocessed or only processed uh, to, a, to a small degree. So for me, what I'm hoping the novel can do, which is perhaps different from what I had expected or thought about before August 14th, is I'm hoping that it can be not only a source of information for people who are not Haitian, and maybe don't remember 2010 or don't realize the amplitude of that, of that earthquake, but that it can also be a place where people who are working through, you know, Haitians or people related to Haiti intimately who are working through the effects of this summer uh, for themselves, but it might be a place where they can find uh, resonance with their own experience and maybe some healing. You know, I would be remiss if I did not mention the uh, the thousands of Haitians who've been looking for some peace and security, uh, those thousands of Haitians who, you know, we saw those images from the, the, the Texas border, uh, Del Rio, yes. Texas, you know, yes. those thousands of Haitians under that bridge. Mm -hmm. We saw the, the searing images of those border agents on horseback, whipping, right. whipping right. Haitians, whipping these, mm -hmm. whipping these people, ordinary people. And I'm wondering, you know, you are a Canadian, but you're mm -hmm. also Haitian. You're also an American. I'm now American too. You're yes. an American as well. And, and I'm wondering how, how have you been processing what's been going on with these people who are just looking for a chance, looking for an opportunity for a right. new kind of life? How, as an artist, as a, as a citizen, how are you processing all of that? Well, you know, it's been very disappointing um, to see the reaction of the U.S. government to those migrants. And um, I don't know that I've heard much out of Canada, I have to say, about, uh, about uh, you know, lending a hand to Haitian migrants either. And I know that um, when uh, temporary protective status was extended, uh, well, was terminated actually under Trump, and many uh, Haitians who were under that status in the United States uh, went to the Canadian border, but I believe they went into Montreal, that they were repatriated to Haiti in the same way um, that Haitians coming up to the Mexico border being repatriated by the American government. So one of the things that strikes me is that we have a different set of standards or rules when it comes to Haitian migrants than we do for other kinds of migrants who come uh, from other countries. Um, and, you know, and, and I mean, particularly from the Caribbean, because clearly in terms of the Mexico border, the treatment is similar to how uh, some uh, Latin American migrants have been treated and repatriated by the American government, especially in the last few years. Um, but the treatment that is overtly racialized that we saw uh, at the Texas border uh, by those border control uh, men on, on horseback 
um, is very consistent with the treatment of uh, Black Americans in this country, but also very consistent with a long history uh, of turning one's back against Haitian migrants, usually coming by sea to this country, and uh, which is not the case when Caribbean people come from other islands, for example, from Cuba, when they're actually uh, intercepted at sea and brought into the country. So one of the things, you know, there is a connection between all these events. And I, and I think sometimes it gets lost when we see, you know, you know, the thousands that we saw in the images, because most of the Haitian migrants who came to the border, you know, the, in the last month were coming from Chile and Brazil, which are two places that actually provided visas for uh, uh, survivors of a 2010 earthquake. And uh, a few years later, um, either rescinded those visas or um, started shutting down their immigration processes. And this is what set a number of people uh, on a, a very long trek across you know, a continent and a half to reach the United States under the false belief that the United States was opening up its doors to Haitian migrants. Another thing that very few people know is that there is legislation that was passed in the United States in 2001, which made Haitians a uh, very particular class uh, in uh, immigration policy, which classifies Haitians as being uh, homeland security risks related to terrorism. Um, that is not true of any other Latin American or Caribbean ethnic group. Um, and it makes it possible then to refuse uh, Haitians, regardless of their ability to demonstrate need or uh, protection. Um, I would point people who want to know more about immigration, uh, I would say missed policies in the United States, in particular to Edwige Danzica's uh, memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, which is a memoir of her uh, father and uncle, uh, her uncle who died. Uh, despite having a visa, uh, so legal right to be in the United States who died uh, um, in, in Homeland Security um, at Chrome in, uh, in Florida. So there's a long history of, uh, of treating Haitian migrants and refugees as if they have no claims or as if their claims are only ones of impoverishment. But as we've already discussed, even that impoverishment is related to political um, interventions or that were intended to disable Haiti and make it impossible for, for Haiti to thrive. Mm -hmm. Mary Shasi, this book of yours, What Storm, What Thunder, it, it's, it's a stunning achievement and a really, really Thank beautifully, you. Rendered, beautifully rendered book. And, and the final question I have for you is, do you have another, another novel in you? <laughs> is, is there another novel that you're working on that we'll be getting our hands on soon? Well, I don't know how soon. I seem to uh, go many years between books, um, but I am working on something new. Um, I think as many, many of us uh, in the last year, year and a half have been, you know, working through the effects of the pandemic. Um, I, you know, lost my mother the year before, the year prior to the pandemic, and uh, her entire sibling group died uh, within a couple of years of, of, you know, of her own uh, illness and dying. And um, I lost a number of, of close friends in the last year, not to COVID, but actually to, to cancers, including uh, one of my mother's uh, sisters. And I've begun to reflect on 
this idea of generational passing, you know, when a whole generation is lost and uh, what could be remembered about, um, you know, a generation or, or siblings who are lost at the same time. So the next novel is exploring something along those lines that have to do with uh, both Haiti and, and the DR. And uh, the cover of the new book, What Storm, What Thunder, has birds on it, as you might have noticed, uh, hummingbirds, which are actually, uh, these hummingbirds are actually taken from Audubon's uh, rendering of Haitian hummingbirds. And some people may not know that Audubon was born in Saint-Domingue, uh, which is what Haiti was known as before, before it became Haiti. And he left there at age seven. And he also had a, a sister who uh, was black. And so I'm exploring um, his story alongside the story of the siblings. Um, and of course, I, I spent some time in Louisiana and in Louisiana, the Creoles of Louisiana do not believe that Audubon uh, had a half sister. They believe that was a full sister. So I'm exploring those rumors as well. We'll see where they lead. Mm -hmm. Well, we are anticipating it. You know, we're, we're on the edge of our seat. You know, we, we, we can't wait to, to, to get a, our hands on that next piece of work of yours. Ray Michonsi, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Thank you so much, Adrian. And, and thank you for, for bringing the book to the attention of Canadian readers. I really appreciate it. That was CBC's Adrian Harewood in conversation with Miriam J.A. Chancy about her acclaimed novel, What Storm, What Thunder. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. The only thing better than buying a great book is buying one from a great independent bookseller. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.